This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To start your free 14-day trial, visit shopify.com. Hey, entrepreneurs, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. On the last episode, we talked about how PrideDesigns.com created a Facebook fan page that now drives the majority of her traffic to her $30,000 a month store. On today's episode, you'll learn from an entrepreneur that manufactures his products in conflict-affected areas. In this episode, you'll learn why you want to find a PR firm that's the same size as your business, why you might want to consider outsourcing to countries like Afghanistan and Colombia, and how to work with an existing business in your industry to cut down on the learning curve. Today, I'm joined by Matthew Griff Griffin from CombatFlipFlops.com. Combat Flip Flops creates peaceful, forward-thinking opportunities for self-determined entrepreneurs afflicted by conflict, and they're starting out by selling, creating and selling flip-flops, clothing, and accessories. And was started in 2012, uh, based out of Issaquah, Washington. Hopefully, I said that right. Welcome, Matthew. Well, thanks for having me today. I appreciate it. Cool. So I guess I'll call you by your nickname going forward, which is uh, Griff. So Griff, tell us a little bit more about your your store and what are some of the most popular products that you sell? Uh, so our, our story is, you know, we started out as Army Rangers. Uh, so as my brother in arms, Lee, um, him and I served multiple tours in Afghanistan and Iraq together. And then we partnered up with my brother-in-law, Andy. And uh, we decided to go back to these war-torn areas and started making fashion and lifestyle products. And we started out making flip-flops in a combat boot factory in Afghanistan, and now we've moved on into a full fashion and lifestyle brand um, on multiple continents. So were you guys um, both, were you serving at the time? Like, what was your, what was going on, I guess, in your life when you were thinking about starting this business? Yeah, it was oddly enough, it was after I got out of the military, I started traveling back to Afghanistan to work medical clinics and contracts Mm -hmm. in Afghanistan. And I saw the positive effects of entrepreneurship and business in in these conflict areas. And the thought just kept occurring to me, we should do more of this. You know, we should send more microloans and entrepreneurs than you know, bullets and armored vehicles. Mm. And we'd turn these areas around. And so, uh, yeah, I was just traveling around on the economy. And I, I thought, you know, we, we should figure out a way to, to have more business between our two countries. And it just so happens that everybody needs clothes and everybody needs shoes. And that's where we started. Yeah, that makes sense. So you were just kind of traveling around and noticed that there were a lot of people that were that either were starting their own business um, in these countries that you're going to or wanted to, maybe didn't have the funds at the time. So what was like the next step? Like you saw that there was all of this kind of potential, um, not just for for your own business, but then also a lot of potential for other people to start their own business or find work. Well, how do you how do you even get started with something like this? Like you knew that you wanted to create a business. Like what were the, the I guess the very first steps to 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 um I guess turn that into reality? We we followed the guerrilla marketing one oh one. It, that's just how we started. So the first thing that we did is that we, you know, sourced the idea through a few of trusted agents, people in the industry, and s- said, "Hey, what do you think? Is this a good idea?" And they said yes. Uh, then we started coming up with some line sketches and designs. And then we put it out on the internet, and people thought it was cool, and they provided feedback. So we went and we modified the line drawings again, and they said, "Yeah, that looks great. I'd buy some." And then we went and we found out how to build footwear through some consultants. And we built some prototypes and we took product photos of them. And people thought they were really cool and wanted to buy more. 
And so each, at each point, we established benchmarks and thresholds for next steps. And we just kept doing that in a very iterative manner uh, to the point to where we had a couple hundred flip-flops in a duffel bag and a very basic website. And we decided we were going to go live and start selling. That's cool. So um, what, what was like the timeline between all this? Because you, you gave a lot of kind of steps along the way. It sounds like um, it might have taken some amount of time. Like what would give us the idea how long something like this takes to, to go from idea to creating these prototypes and validating the market? So I had the idea in 2009 and I met my brother-in-law in the back of a Suburban. <laughs> nice. Um, on the way to his bachelor party, I really got to know him there and I floated the idea past him and he thought it was really cool and wanted to be a part of it. So that was... November 2010, where the company really started coming together. And by you know, February 11, we had line drawings. And by December of 11, we had prototypes in hand and we started selling in January 12. So just about a year. Mm-hmm. Can you say a little bit more about line drawings? I'm not sure. I'm not familiar with that. And just give us an, ex- an idea of like, what, what are these things and why are they necessary as like the beginning steps towards creating uh, prototypes? Well, I mean, it's so simple. You know, it doesn't really cost you anything to do some art on a computer. So, if you can find somebody who can graphically depict what your product is going to look like, uh, people can see it before you actually have to invest the money to make it a physical product. You know, I could come up with something and it it looks like crap, and people don't want to buy it. So, I'm not going to spend money on it. Instead, what we do is we we develop a line drawing so that way people go, "Oh, that's cool," but it would look better in brown, or you should put a bullet casing on it, or whatever else it would be. So that way, by the time we get around to making a, a prototype, it's closest to the finished product that people would want. Mm, makes makes sense. sense. And yeah. how do you uh, get this created? Do you f- how do you find somebody to create this? Or do you do it all in-house? Uh, YouTube. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I mean, really, there's nothing you can't figure out now on, on, without YouTube in a book or a library as a business owner. You can figure out how to do everything from graphic art to manufacturing to marketing. It's, it's all out there. And the only reason you don't know it is because you haven't invested the time mm-hmm. to learn it. And is there a particular, for anybody out there that is trying to do this themselves, is there like a particular app or tool that you use to put this together? Or is it like even simpler than that? It's even simpler than that. I mean, just literally figure out how to draw something on your computer, save it as a JPEG and post it on the internet. Cool. <laughs> nice. So yeah. that's how you kind of got the validation. You created the, what it would look like, you know, on digitally and you put it out there and then you got... You said that you were getting feedback from people to see if they would buy it. Was that the next step? Yeah, that was it. It was like, hey, we're thinking about this idea manufactured in Afghanistan. Do you think it's cool? If so, what would you like better or worse about it? And they, they literally, people, we just asked the question and people gave us their response and we just changed it up to reflect it. And we, we asked the same people again, does this look better? And they said, yeah, it looks great. And mm. we just kept, kept doing that over and over. I mean, you can't make everybody happy. Right. right, but if you find the the people who are you know trendsetters or leaders and get their opinion on things, then you typically get closer to a finished solution than you would um, you would be able to get on your own. Yeah, I mean that that's a good point about how you can't make cannot make everybody happy. Um, and then there's obviously going to be people out there that aren't going to like it. And but how do you know personally when it's ready to go? Even if there are people that are not necessarily haters, but people that are uh, still not completely sold on it. Like how do you know when you're ready to just say you know let's ignore these people? We have enough feedback already. Let's just keep moving forward. How did you come to that realization? Uh, we had enough positive feedback that we knew if we sold every pair out of the first one we made, we made we'd break even or make a little money. Um, and those are the people who said they would like them and would buy a pair. Okay, so you had enough people that were saying yes, we were interested in buying them to fulfill that to to sell all of the initial run. 
Correct. Okay, cool. So you have these line drawings. You said that you went to get, was the next stage to get prototypes made? Correct. Yeah, we, we found a footwear company in uh, Los Angeles that was doing manufacturing in Asia. And we said, hey, we don't know how to make shoes. Here's the draw- line drawings of what we want to manufacture. Can you help us make them? And so we paid them a consultancy fee uh, to help us de- develop our tooling and our leathers and our material specifications. So that way we could have everything built uh, in a quality manner that we wanted. Mm-hmm. So how many, did you have to get a bunch of samples or like how did you initially work with them to get those prototypes made? Yeah, so that's exactly what we did is they went and sourced multiple factories to either hand cut or you know, get a rough sketch of what the product would look like. And they sent us multiple swatches of fabrics and colors of EVA and rubbers and, and vinyls. And essentially we, we picked out everything in a raw material form and we picked out the winners that we liked on that. And then three factories manufactured them with the materials that we liked. And then we picked out the cut, the feel, the finish, and the quality that we liked. And we eventually we whittled our way down to a finished product between materials and manufacturing. I see. So you went to like an agency to organize all this, or did you have to go out yourself and find all these manufacturers to try and find one that would work for you? No, we went through an agency. Cool. Yeah, I think that's um, that's something I definitely want to talk about because I think it's a, a part that a lot of uh, entrepreneurs spend a lot of time in is just trying to find the right people to to help them piece it all together. But you went through an agency that had all these connections already. So you can tell us a little bit more about how you found them and like what was it like working with an agency like this. Uh, you know, we don't believe in reinventing the wheel. Mm-hmm. You know, there are people who are doing this on a, on a daily basis and they're very professional. They get bulk discounts on materials and shipping and, you know, they're always shipping stuff back and forth. And so we found them through uh, just a business network. So one of our owners, Donald Lee, had worked with this footwear company before and knew some of the guys that did their footwear development. And so he literally just called them and said, hey, we're thinking about starting this company. Can you help us? And they said yes, and we sat down and we developed a statement of work uh, between our two companies about what they would do for us and what we were willing to pay them, and then we executed on that statement of work. I see. So it wasn't even like somebody that was or a company that was specifically, you know, focused on matching up new new business owners with manufacturers. You found somebody that are, was already doing something similar, and maybe not exact same products, but was in footwear. And you said, "Give us your knowledge. Give us your not give us, but you know, help us with your knowledge. Help us with your contacts, and give us guidance." And there's basically some kind of consulting agreement from there. Correct. That's it. And you know, they already have their people on the ground in Asia. They already have their factory managers. And as a new entrepreneur, I could go and spend, you know, thousands of dollars to buy a plane ticket to Asia, you know, hotel fees, ground transportation, you know, to develop and build that network, which would just take me forever and thousands of dollars. And instead I could just use that money to access a network that's already built. Yeah, I like that approach, um, you know, because a lot of times uh, us entrepreneurs will want to be doing everything. We want to have everything come from our head and create everything from scratch and that's kind of like the creator mentality but if you want to run a business you want to want to run a fast launch a fast and run it efficiently uh, you should definitely not reinvent the wheel like you're like you're saying um cool so you have this uh you have the prototypes made and you have the 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 manufacturers already uh, on the ground or the contacts over there um so i know that you're mentioning before that one of the big kind of um i guess unique things about your business is that it was it's being made from Uh, people in conflict afflicted areas can you tell us a little bit more about how that's all set up yeah perfect so we again we started in afghanistan and it started in a combat boot factory uh, that i saw in 2009 and this factory was there to build boots for the afghan national army and afghan national police and it was employing 
three to 500 people on a daily basis. And each one of those people supports five to 13 family members. So the, the social impact of that factory being open is, is enormous. Mm-hmm. It's huge. Thousands of people are supported by that one factory. And our thought was, after the war ends, they're not going to be making combat boots anymore. They should be making something else, right? So you can continue to have that mm-hmm. positive social impact. Uh, so that was our thought as you know, we started in a combat boot factory there. We've had some challenges with manufacturing, but essentially our business says that you know, we go to areas where people are affected by conflict and they want to use business to make a positive impact in their communities. So we started in Afghanistan. Uh, then we went to Colombia. Uh, we went to Laos. Uh, we did some work in the Balkans, but we're not working there now. And we, uh, we make some stuff here in the United States in veteran-owned facilities. And then we're starting some stuff in Africa here in the next year. Mm, that's, all, that's awesome. That's amazing. So when you, are, when you had these contacts with these manufacturers, were they just producing the raw materials that then were going to places like Afghanistan and Colombia to be made? Like how, is that all, how does the supply chain all kind of connect together? Well, it really depends on where we're manufacturing. So Afghanistan does not have the ability to make raw materials, so mm-hmm. no leather, shoelaces, threads, or things like that. So essentially you have to buy the materials out of country, ship it in, then have it assembled. And that's logistically intensive. Uh, which is why we failed on our first couple of runs is, you know, they say amateurs talk tactics, professionals talk logistics. Mm. Logistically, it was just too, too long and too expensive to be feasible. Um, so now what we do is we, we stop making our footwear in Afghanistan. And so now we just make our woven products there. So all of our sarongs and shamas and scarves and cashmere are made in Afghanistan because they can source the material from the farm field all the way to the finished product in Afghanistan. So we have a better, you know, better impact in the community all the way from start to finish. Uh, we moved our footwear production to Bogota, Colombia. So everything from the leather to the EVA to the rubber is all made within 20 miles of our factory. So the, it's a very small logistical and carbon footprint. Uh, our bags and stuff are made in the U.S. out of USA-based materials. So our, you know, the, the real thing that we did is we said, okay, we're going to source all of our materials for our finished products in our areas of manufacturing. So that's what we do. Awesome. So, you know, when people think about, I want to do and talk about logistics some more, because I, I think a lot of times when um, entrepreneurs are thinking about outsourcing, like how can you find the manufacturers for it? They immediately look to like outsourcing or manufacturing in China. Uh, but, you know, you obviously didn't go that route, went to like Afghanistan, Colombia, like you were saying. Uh, so if someone out there is thinking about sourcing the manufacturing outside of the U.S., like I guess what are some, I guess, pros and cons from the place? Places that you've uh, you've gone to 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 get your your products made that you maybe think are that are better potentially than than like let's say outsourcing to China. Um, I'd have to say the the drive is is better in these areas that don't have as much business. So if, if there's a quality issue, um, there's never a back and forth on this. Well, hey, this is kind of like what you told us to put in it, or. You know, oh, this is kind of the material spec. You know, there's never any of those issues that you typically find in Asia where you get the bait and switch. Mm-hmm. Um, in our areas in, in Afghanistan, if there's something wrong with the product, you know, we're bringing opportunity, they replace it immediately. So the, the working relationship is, is great because they are hungry to be competitive on the global market, mm-hmm. and they understand that the quality and customer service is a key part of that. And so just from a business-to-business standpoint and a relationship standpoint, Working with these countries that are outside of Asia has been quite spectacular from a, just a relationship standpoint. Additionally, too, is that time zones matter. You know, as an entrepreneur, uh, it's already stressful enough, and you're taking time away from your family. 
And so what we found is that if you're working with people, say, in South America or Central America, it's a lot easier on your work lifestyle because you're not having to be you know, 10 and mm-hmm. a half or 12 hours off in schedule to talk to somebody and you're losing days. Uh, you know, having somebody in the same hemisphere as you is, is quite nice <laughs> yeah. uh, to be able, to, to, be able to, to discuss timelines and product. And then in the end, as well as you need to really take a look at overall transit cost, either in bulk or in a per unit cost, uh, plus time. Right, so it's going to affect your your landed costs, and it's also going to affect your financing, because if you have to spend more time shipping the product, you're paying that financing while it's bobbing across an ocean mm. or on a truck, versus if you do it somewhere in, you know, in the eastern or western hemisphere, and it's closer to your finished shipping point, you're not having to carry that financing as long because it gets to you faster, and you're able to ship it quicker. That, that's amazing. Those are great selling points for um, manufacturing over there. Did you know all these things going into or did they kind of come to light as you were you know, getting more involved in manufacturing over there? Uh, they came to light more as we were getting into manufacturing. Um, it, and additionally, there's some incentives as well. Uh, we work in Colombia because there's a free trade agreement. We don't pay duties or tariffs on our stuff coming inbound from Colombia. Mm. So we save ourselves you know, 18 to 30 points on footwear over Asia. Wow, that's um, awesome. Yeah, and I mean, there, there's a lot of programs that are incentivizing American businesses to do work in developing nations. And if you if you take advantage of those, you can do good business for people and make a quality product and you know run a good business yourself. Mm-hmm. So, do you have to be on site when you go to these places? Like, have you visited? I guess um, how often do you go and check out what's going on in these countries that you're manufacturing in? Um, so, Andy will go down to Colombia once or twice a year. Uh, I'll go over to Afghanistan. You know, once or twice a year, and we typically go there as long as, as long as it makes good business sense. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of it's tied between manufacturing, marketing, and just business relationships. So, you thank God for technology because we can do a lot of it over Skype now, and it saves us thousands of dollars in travel just being able to work with somebody on a daily basis via mm-hmm. a camera versus having to be there in the factory. No, definitely. That makes sense. Cool. So you uh, obviously were able to get up l- l- enough demand to sell out that first run. Once you, once that happened, like what was next? Like what were the next steps in actually turning this from just like this validation phase into an actual business? It was really challenging because all of us had day jobs mm-hmm. for the first year and a half of the company. So all the way through summer of 2013 we all work side jobs and uh eventually got to a point where we had to manufacture and all of our manufacturing fell out from underneath us where we had to convert my garage into a gorilla flip-flop factory and we manufactured four thousand pair of flip-flops in my garage wow who's doing this (laughs) so primarily that was done by my brother andy um and then a couple of friends who just lived in the local area, we hired them to come in and, and help us out. But our, our factories closed down. We owned raw material, and we needed to ship product to customers. And we'd seen them make footwear in Afghanistan, and our thought was, yeah, it doesn't look very hard. We could do that. <laughs> so we got smart on adhesives and bought a sander and you know, put some industrial wiring in the shop, and, and we got after it for a few months. And that legitimized the fact of how committed we were to this business. Um, and we started, we said, all right, we can't make footwear in Afghanistan anymore. So then we made the jump to Colombia, and then we went back to Afghanistan for Shamaz and scarves. And we started making Claymore bags here in the U S and veteran known facilities. And you know, that was really the jump. It was, I'd have to say is spring 13 when we went from a footwear company with no manufacturing to a full on fashion and lifestyle brand within 
six months. That's awesome. So 4,000 flip-flops, like you guys were, like were these 4,000 that were ordered and needed them right away? Like how much of a time crunch were you in between the time that your, your factories or your manufacturers could no longer take on the work and now you had to create a guerrilla workshop essentially outside, inside your garage? Like uh, how much stress was there at that time? Like what was going on? It was a ridiculous amount of stress. Um, some people had bought their products in January of 12 and we didn't deliver it until Mar- February or March of 13. So wow. some people actually waited 15 months for their footwear. And how did you manage that? How did you control to make sure there wasn't like, you know, a horde of angry customers? We, we just kept telling them the story. And so mm. essentially as we bounced around the world and went through all these different factories, we just took lots of photos and videos and people saw how crazy it yeah, was. Or else, it works. Yeah, and they said, you guys are nuts. Just keep going. And it, essentially, you know, we had one factory closed down on us in September um, we had another factory closed down on us in December and essentially we showed the people like, Hey, these are the factories you're working in, but they lost their, their combat boot contracts. And here's the container of raw materials with our stuff in it. Um, we're just going to make them ourselves. If you'll wait another couple of months, we'll send you photos of us making them. And people just said, you guys are crazy. Well, yeah, we'll watch. We'll go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely get them involved, right? I think the companies that are kind of, you know, not delivering on time and then just being really secretive about it, people get really angry about that. I think if you're just reasonable and say, hey, being very transparent, most people are going to be reasonable back to you. And it sounds exactly what played out for you guys. Summer 2013 was the crunch time for you guys. You said that you still all had jobs at the time. Uh, when did you make that transition then to starting to work uh, full-time on the business? It was June 2013. I was uh, vice president of a, a government contracting company, and we had saved up enough money where you know, we had our living expenses covered, um, and I could make the jump as an entrepreneur to fully commit my time. And then, you know what they say is people don't commit to you until you commit to it. Mm. And it just seemed like one of those things where we weren't making those big jumps as a company uh, because all of us were kind of had our toe in the water and weren't fully committed to it. But essentially we got to, uh, got to a point to where it was either sink or swim and we had to, you know, go full time into it. And so summer of 2013, my family and I, we rented out our house and we went on a road trip around Europe and selling our products there throughout the U S and, and it grew ever since. That's awesome. That's an awesome story. I think it's a position that a lot of other entrepreneurs are in where they are thinking about how can I how can I grow this a little bit faster? Like you're saying, right? It's not making these big jumps in the business. So uh, maybe for, if you get some advice for an entrepreneur out there that is thinking about starting, uh, making this jump, like what would you recommend? Like how much money, how much expenses do you think they need to cover? Like for how, how, how many months and give us an idea of how much preparation went into this before you made that jump. Yeah. I mean, our, our minimum threshold was, uh, we needed to be generating revenue I mean, you, you have to make a plan, right? You have to understand your forecast, your profit and loss statement, and your cash flow. You know, to, to leave a, a livelihood and a day job to support your family without doing the due diligence or planning is really irresponsible, right? So you have to, yeah, you have to plan it out before you can make the jump. So you weren't planning on tapping into those like six months of living expenses, like you're still hoping to live off of the revenue from the store or were you like, actively draining from your savings account? Uh, I, I say it's a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. You know, it, your, your overall goal is to, you know, is to make money out of the company, but more often than not as a small business owner, you don't make any money. 
you know, for the first couple of years in running a business. Right. Um, and if you do, but you, and you're, you got your stuff together and you probably have your numbers squared away better than most. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the mix was to say, you're using those living expenses to cover your, your overhead, uh, while you're growing your business to the point to where it can catch up. Mm, okay. Makes sense. And so when you were able to, it sounded like you, things really started to, to, to move along once you guys all committed full time, or at least some of you committed full time into this business. Uh, what do you think were you, were you, that you were able to do that you weren't able to do while you had a full time job? Like what are some things that you immediately said, Oh wow, now that I don't have a full time job, I can start doing this and it actually had an impact on your business. Uh, sales, right? Sales is, is a persistent job. You get told no 99 times until you get that one sale. And it's just a matter of time in the saddle and going after it. And so being able to focus your time toward getting sales, whether that's developing the online content or marketing plan to sell it online or to go to dealers, you know, you need that dedicated time during work hours to be able to sell your product to them and then be able to fulfill it back on the operation side as well. So those are the things that are very iterative if you have a part-time job versus if you're able to focus your time on it, you can batch things together and make huge steps forward um, in smaller amounts of time. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So you uh, want to talk a little bit about PR because that's what you were saying about how that really kind of kicked things off for you. And I think one of the biggest pieces of PR that you ever had was the feature on Shark Tank. So tell us a little about that experience. Like how did you get involved in it? And I guess we'll start there and we'll, we'll see where this goes. So how did you get on Shark Tank, I guess? You know, it's oddly enough is we didn't apply. Uh, we got invited. Uh, so through our PR effort, we ended up meeting a guy who wrote for Gizmodo. His name is Wes Seiler. He's a fantastic writer. We met him for an hour in a bar in L.A. Um, in amidst other meetings just because we were down there doing some sales. Our PR agent, Kate, had gotten us linked up with him. And you know, four or five days later, our website started crashing. And he had pushed 176,000 readers across his article and. and I think like 48 hours. Um, so it was a huge press for us. And that one of the producers for Shark Tank saw it and they called us up and asked us to be on the show. So we got invited to be on the show. And, and they say there's anywhere between 9 to 11 million viewers on Shark Tank uh, per episode. So it's just a huge chance to get our mission exposed to the masses in, in America. So we said, "Hey, let's let's go after it. Let's do it." And we put all of our <laughs> all of our eggs in that basket, and we we went after it pretty hard. And we filmed in June of 2015, and we aired in February of 2016. Awesome! I think one of the big things, like I, you know, thank you for sharing those viewer numbers. And I think one of the other big things that people want to know is like how much of an impact did it have on your actual business? So I'm not sure how comfortable you're sharing with numbers or how how deep in depth you want to go into. But like, what happened after the the show aired for your business? In 72 hours, we did more business than we had in our previous years combined. Yeah, that's amazing. And what I, I can feel like that's like when you say that, and if I was in your shoes, it'd be a mixed emotion of like, wow, we've made it. And then also like, oh crap, now how, what do we, how do we do this? How do we get everything fulfilled? So what was that? What was it like the weeks and months, or I guess not too many months, but the weeks after that, that air date? Um, yeah, it was, it was kind of unique. I mean, it, generally, everybody had a really good reception to our product and our mission, and we were very clear about how backordered we were. We sent out multiple emails and telling them that we'd update people on product. Um, and you know, generally, we, we were still a staff of three. You know, we're still owner-operated with three guys. And I sat down for essentially two weeks straight and answered thousands of emails and figured out our customer service system, and then we hired a customer service staffer. 
And then we started getting our first shipments in. So then we you know, rebuilt our warehouse and figured out inventory and fulfillment and how we're going to manage that. And it was <clears throat> kind of fix it as you go, I would have to say, or don't plan too much ahead of time because you really don't know the challenges you're going to face. And you know, every time ahead, we had a general idea of how things were going to roll. And as they came in, we you know, focused on them, uh, took care of them right then, and then moved on to the next problem. So I guess it was about being present <laughs> in the problems that we were facing as a business, doing our best with them at, at each occurrence, and then moving on to the next. And it's, it seems to have been working out well for us. Awesome. And can you tell us a little about the deal and how much they, did you eventually get um, invested in, which, which sharks uh, were involved? Uh, the, the deal on TV was $300,000 for 30% equity of our company. And that was split 10% each between Laurie Grenier, Damon John and Mark Cuban. That's amazing. What a great kind of uh, group to work with. And how, I guess how, how there's only been, I guess a couple of months since your, your air day, like how involved are they with, uh, the business? Like how much access do you have to these, um, sharks? I would say it's more of a, a mentorship role. You know, you are there to run your own business and they're there to help. And they'll help you as much as you ask, I guess is the question. Mm. I, that's the answer. So um, as, as much as you want to communicate and work with them is they'll communicate and work with you, but you have to you know, run your business in a profitable manner in order to get that attention. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, they are ridiculously busy, so you kind of have to put in a lot of the work and then almost like go from first base to second base to third base and they help you get home. Like you can't expect them to hit the home runs for you. I think that's uh, typical of anybody that has a mentor or anybody that they're working with for help that's you know much, much more established than them. You have to put the effort in to expect to get effort back. Um, so cool. So I want to take a step back now outside of Shark Tank because I think a lot of your success that led to the exposure in Shark Tank came from all of your PR work before that. Um, and you said that you had an agent that you worked with for PR. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, how you were able to find an agent? Because um, I think the listeners out there are also in a similar situation where they don't know a lot about PR, but know that it's an important part of marketing. Give us an idea of how you find somebody to work with. Uh, so we were very fortunate in the fact that I, I knew a couple companies um, in the outdoor industry that had had PR and they were smaller businesses. So as a, as a small business, you can't invest in a huge PR firm for a $10,000 a month retainer. It just doesn't work. So you need to be able to find somebody who is a small business just like you, works well in PR, has multiple clients to split their overhead costs and go from there. So um, I have to really say it's business by referral and then really be specific about what you want them to do. Like I want to get into you know, this magazine or I want to get my product placed on this blog. I need product releases and PR releases done you know, quarterly. Right. And really plan it out so you know what their costs are going to be and then go from there. Okay, cool. I want to break this down a little bit. So with your the agent that you found, you said that you found people in the outdoors industry. Like you want to also find a PR agent that has experience in the same industry that you're in or like how important is that? Yeah, it's I mean, if if I'm making auto parts, I don't want somebody who's experienced in cosmetics. Right. And knows all Mm -hmm. the people that know cosmetic magazines. If you're selling an outdoor or a military type product, you want somebody who knows all the editors and the writers in the outdoor and the military type environment. So we went and found those communities and found out who are the PR firms that spoke with those agencies. And really my criteria on a PR agent is really simple is um, when they call and their caller ID pops up on your phone, do you want to answer their call? <laughs> yeah, I think it's really simple because if you want to answer their call, you know the writers and all the people that are going to write about your product, they want to answer her call as well. 
Um, the one thing you said was about how you want to be specific about what you want. I think this is a really good point because you can't just be like, hey, I hired a PR person. Now all PR stuff is taken care of. I don't got to think about it. I don't got to worry about it. But it's not like that at all, right? So tell us a little bit about how specific you have to get. And is this all done before the business relationship begins? Or like when do you start talking about these specific goals? You start talking about the specific goals with them um, prior to committing to a contract to a retainer. You, know, you have to tell them what you need them to do um, and what your expectations are if they're going to meet those expectations. Gotcha. So how do you actually work with them? So you say, I want to be on this you know, magazine or I want to be on this blog. How involved do you have to get once you kind of have these goals? Like what, what do they do and how do you work with them? I mean, essentially you say, hey, I, would, I would really like to be on this blog um, in this quarter with this product, please pitch it to them and make sure that it's good. And so you know, essentially they'll put together a product release and photos and, and they'll reach out to the editors of a blog or a, a content platform and they'll source, you know, build the relationship to get the person comfortable to, to posting it. And if they have any secondary questions of you or the, the, that the people at the, at the content site want to speak to you, then you arrange your time to speak to them. But essentially is you just make it easy for them to pitch your product um, to that site and you make it easy for the, the person to get the information they need to to make it relevant to their reader base. Mm. So, yeah, that's what we do. Makes sense. Uh, so, uh, it sounded like, uh, obviously, Shark Tank is probably the biggest PR win that you've had. Then you also had the, you said it was on Gizmodo, was the site? Gizmodo, correct. Cool. So, uh, what was the the key to getting the the Gizmodo features? I know you met with them in person, but did you did you or your PR agent like pitch them beforehand to get that meeting? Like, how do you get people to, I guess, pay attention or at least uh, open their ears to hearing what you have to say to begin with? Uh, it takes time. It, it really, that's it. And uh, I had a reporter tell me this once: is it's going to be three years before anybody ever really listens to you. Hmm. Right? It's three years of solid business. And so you have to work your way up the food chain in a matter of PR. You're going to start with a local newspaper or a smaller online publication. You're going to get a win. You're going to grow the business. And then you're going to go to the next bigger one. Right? So you're going to work your way from the low-hanging fruit to the, to the big apples at the top of the tree. And it just takes, takes about three years to do. I see. So what you're saying is that focus on the smaller scale kind of PR outlets, get them as lot easier to pitch them on featuring you. And then from there, kind of, I guess, um, parlay that into bigger features on other publications. Correct. Okay. Do you have to go into these? Like, let's say that you get featured in a local magazine and you want a good feature now in some uh, nationwide magazine. Do you go to nationwide magazine and say, hey, look, I got featured already here? Or is it more like they see that you've been featured and then they reach out to you? Yeah, they, I mean, they see that you've been featured. Well, I think it's a mixture of the both. I mean, you got to be very honest with them that you want to go. And then they're going to research you. And the more they find about you on the internet by other third parties or other publications, the more they're going to want to write about you. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So based on your, your experience so far, if there's a listener out there that doesn't have any budget at all to hire a PR agency, is there anything that just based on your experience that they can work on on a smaller scale, like smaller scale PR wins that they should be focusing on when they're early on in their business? Yeah, definitely. You can do a lot of their own PR yourself. Uh, learn how to do a, a product release or an announcement. Um, there's plenty of online publications that can show you the format and how to do that. And you can do all of that stuff yourself, and you can also contact every every one of those media publications via their website, online, their Facebook, their Twitter, uh, in order to get a hold of them and to, to get the relevant person to where you can 
push their product to them. And you remember it's, you know, persistence wears down resistance. So it's going to take time. Yes. Yeah, so you were saying that um, it was a, there's like a, a launch or something, a product announcement, um, I guess, method that you use. Can you say a little bit more about that? Um, yeah, I don't do it. So I, I can't really speak too clearly on it, but I know that every time you launch a product, you know, there's a public announcement or a, a press release mm-hmm. um, that gets put together and goes out. And so it basically, you know, has a photo of the product at the top, you know, name of the company, location, and the new product, why it's cool, and then basic information about the company. So that way, you know, people, all the people in the press have the basic who, what, when, where, why, in order to ask more questions if they want to put it on their publication. I see. So maybe someone goes around for like product announcement, uh, press release, or press release templates, or something like that. They can probably find uh, what you need to put together to to get this out there in a way that is easily digestible by um, the PR outlets that want to feature you. Cool. So. Um, I guess your, your agent probably handles all of the, the organization of everything. Did you ever have at any point uh, had to kind of create a system or anything to uh, keep track of all the PR contacts or campaigns that you guys want to, to run? No, she runs her own spreadsheet and just tracks everything. So it's a, a PR pipeline. So you know, month publication, uh, how many readers they get. You know what product they're going to be taking a look at, and when they're expecting it to come out, and literally you just start building a calendar, and you find out where your holes are at, and then you try and fill in those holes in your calendar, so that mm. way you have consistent PR. Mm, I see. Yeah, definitely sounds like a full time job. I can see why you hired out for this now because there's so many moving pieces. Um, so, other than PR, are there other uh, marketing channels or, or strategies that work well for you guys? Um, you know, I, I really like content marketing, so blogging on our website and then sharing through social media. Uh, it's a great way for you to to really get your message uh, and mission out there, as well as get people to learn more about who you are as a company. And s- instead of them feeling like you're a company, you're more of a group of people that are doing something cool. I like that. I mean, that's another kind of um, a way for you to focus on marketing when you have very little budget because content marketing is free. It costs you your time, but there's no, you don't have to pay for it, especially if you're creating yourself. Um, so for anybody out there that wants to go down the same route of content marketing, I think their biggest obstacle is they ask themselves, oh, not ask themselves, but they say to themselves, I don't know what to talk about. So is there a method or kind of thought process that you go to to figure out what you should be blogging about, what you should be posting about? Uh, our thought process is, you know, for us is we just want people to come to our website to learn how to do stuff, whether it's entrepreneurship, hunting, fishing, motorcycle racing, whatever it is, the theme of our company, right. It's just enabling, like learning how to do something new and going after it. Um, and so my criteria is, uh, two thumb swipes top to bottom because people don't like to read very much anymore. Mm. Right. So on a, on a phone, the whole article has got to be two thumb swipes top to bottom. And there has to be a minimum of three links to relevant information on other independent sites on there. So that does a couple things for you. One is it, it enables a reader to, to find out more information if they want to, but it also uh, gives you more Google juice, right? So you see me as a relevant site because you're linking out to other sites from, from yours. And it just seems to help with your SEO, and that doesn't cost you very much either to be able yeah. to content market, put lots of links on there and then figure out how to drive people to your website through social. Yeah, I mean, I love that you have a format that's that methodical. When I asked you initially, I didn't think that you had almost like a template about two thumb swipes and like three links. I think that's important though, because if you are sitting down and you're writing content, writing blogs, and you have to come up with a new format each and every single time, that's like exhausting because it does tap into your energy and your 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 mental energy when you have to come up with a format. But you have one already and you just kind of have to fill in the pieces and it makes things a lot easier. Cool. And it so, also trains your readers as well. Mm, good point. They get used to, too, like seeing the particular format. I think I, I like that. 
Cool. So let's talk a little bit about um to wrap this up. Let's talk about about your what your what your I guess day to day is like. So when you wake up in the morning, you get into your work mode. Like, how, what are you spending your days on, or what are you spending your days doing? So uh, typically, we wake up around five. I uh, make coffee, and when when coffee is being made, I usually take about thirty minutes to use just some individual reading, uh, whether it's professional uh, development, personal development, or just some entertainment reading. I typically take that time while I. Coffee's brewing to, to tackle a problem or just to, to throw some information into the brain. And then I'm a big fan of the getting things done mentality. Uh, we use OmniFocus for task management software. So I'll get in you know, to the office around 6. Um, I'll you know, sort through my emails really quickly. Uh, if I can answer everything in under two minutes, I'll get those questions done. And then for everything else that's going to be more involved, I you know, put that into my task management software and then put it on the calendar when I'm going to tackle it. And then uh, I take one call between 9.30 to 10, and then I work on projects between 10 and 3, and then I take calls between 3 and 4, and then work on other projects between 4 and 6, um, and then you know just do that every day. Uh, Monday is our, our typical planning uh, day, so as a company, we all put our plans for the week out on Mondays, so we do our, our weekly cash meeting, uh, forecast, and pipeline meeting as well as our, our team update, so that way we all know what we're doing for the week and can support one another. And so that means you know everybody knows what they're doing on Monday, so that way Tuesday through Friday we can all execute, knowing what each member of the team is doing, and we can support each other doing it. Awesome. Yeah, I love how you have it all like scheduled out. I think that's important because you have it scheduled out, then all you do is show up and put in the work. I love it. Um, cool. So you mentioned OmniFocus. Are there any other apps, either through the Shopify App Store or outside of it, like OmniFocus in this case, that you use, that you depend on heavily to run the business? Uh, yeah, we use, um, I mean, everything's online and cloud-based now. So all of our file management stuff is done through Google, right? So the Chrome suite. So all of our files, are everything's shared through Google, all of our email. Um, our individual task management stuff is OmniFocus. Our group task management is Basecamp. Um, and then I, I think if anybody's doing any customer service or lots of emailing on a day, uh, they need to get the software text expander. Um, so it's a text expansion software that if you're typing multiple sentences over and over in a day, you can type them out once and then be able to quick access them with a bunch of different keystrokes. Uh, so it really saves down in your typing time. And then as far as apps go, uh, the biggest app that we use on Shopify is, is Exporter. Um, and that's X-P-O-R-T-E-R, no E on the front of it. And it's a super robust reporting software that enables us to get our financial management, our sales management, um, and all the other data we need to make legitimate decisions to this company. It's a, it's a really great app. Awesome. So you yeah. mentioned before that you spend your mornings. Um, first thing is to try to learn something, career or personal development. What are some of your favorite blogs or books even that have helped you create and run a business? Ooh, um, everything. Uh, if I didn't take an MBA, but I believe in the personalmba.com. So it's you know essentially 99 books in an online community of people that believe that you can educate yourself in business mm-hmm. on your own for free. <laughs> so, uh, you know, just start reading one book and then a problem that you're having, whether it's accounting or marketing or uh, operations is, you know, there's a book in there that deals with it. If you're having a problem in your business, rent that book from the library, read the book, figure out your problem and then put it into immediate action in your business. And if you work your way through all those books on the personalmba.com, you're going to have what they believe to be an equivalent of an Ivy league MBA for a heck of a lot less money. 
Awesome. Yeah, that's a great resource. I've, I've definitely been on that site too. And I think, uh, which same makes a lot of sense, you know, put the time in to learn what you figure out what the problem is. And then someone out there has already solved or has steps to solve it. And you just got to digest that information and then apply it to your business. It's really, you know, it's straight, it's definitely, um, straightforward, but it's definitely requires work. You know, I think that's where it's kind of people shy away from, but if you just put in the work, it seems to always play out. Cool. So, um, in, what's uh, what's in store for the remainder of this year? Like, what do you have planned for uh, combat flip flops? Uh, you know, really, over the next couple of months, we're really focused on uh, securing up our back orders and then moving on to a full on forecasted plan and being able to deliver product uh, in the summer, uh, our summer products, and then be able to afford buy and, and move into the holiday season in the fall with our you know our winter clothing line. And then being able to you know, roll right out into spring 17 aggressively with, uh, with more footwear and, and beachy type items from dangerous places. Nice. Awesome. Thanks so much, Griff. So com- combatflipflops.com is a website. Anywhere else you recommend our listeners go check out if they want to follow along with what you're up to? You know, our Facebook is at Combat Flip Flops. Instagram is at Combat Flip Flops. And Twitter is at Combat Flip Flops. Basically, nice. everything is at Combat Flip Flops. Perfect. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much, Griff. Thanks, Felix. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com for a free 14-day trial.